move this thing out of my mouth. There we go. All right. It never uh, ceases to amaze me uh, how disconnected organised churches are from God. Um, and indeed, if it's one of the consistent characteristics of organised religion over the centuries is that disconnection from God. Now, this might sound a little bit curious uh, because if you can't know God or find God uh, at church, then where on earth can you find him? And uh, uh, that is, of course, a bit of a conundrum. Uh, and uh, it does uh, uh, explain to us a bit uh, why uh, those who seek to uh, characterise uh, periods of history uh, identify a period of the Dark Ages, although the lines that are drawn between one age and the other to distinguish uh, what might be said to be dark and what might, on the other hand, be said to be enlightened uh, is uh, perhaps not the same places we might draw the line if we were truly trying to know God and what he would have us to do. Now, to illustrate this, I've been uh, reading a bit lately uh, about a, a, a favourite period of history uh, that I've uh, looked at at various times and the last time about... 40 years ago, um, and, uh, uh, but I've been looking at the, um, and reading a bit about the French Revolution again, and um, uh, because there's some uh, interesting contrasts uh, that uh, sort of emphasise the point that I wanted, or one of the points that I wanted to make today, uh, and uh, you may or may not uh, remember that uh, before the revolutions, and I say revolutions in plural, uh, in France in the late 1700s and into the 1800s, uh, there were uh, it, sort of the political structure of the uh, society was divided into three estates. The first estate, which were the clergy uh, or the, uh, uh, the church, the second estate of uh, the sword and the nobility, uh, and the third estate, well, Nobody really knew who the third estate were and, in fact, they wrote papers about it and uh, asked everybody about it and, uh, uh, because it certainly wasn't everybody else. Uh, it was a, a different class other than the first and the second estates. And um, uh, without going to a big uh, 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 discussion about uh, revolutionary France, I wanted to jump ahead a bit uh, because this first estate was the church uh, and it was uh, a highly... Um, uh, it was just as corrupt and, and broken as the rest of uh, French society that ultimately came together or fell apart to form uh, what became the French Revolution. Uh, and uh, the first estate had about 130,000 people uh, before the revolution broke out. Uh, and uh, it had an incredibly privileged sta status in, uh, uh, in the uh, political structure. It had uh, forced uh, revenue in, a, in, a, in the sense of a tithe that was imposed on all. Uh, it was not obliged to pay taxes and it had an extraordinary portfolio of properties. Uh, and so it was exceptionally wealthy. 
And uh, even within the estate, there were divided uh, those at the high end uh, uh, who got the uh, cream of the uh, wealth uh, and those uh, smaller uh, parish priests who tried to do the best they could uh, according to their understanding of what their religion required. Now, of course, all of this was somewhat uh, further corrupted by the links back to Rome, and I won't go to all of that and the Catholic uh, aspect of things that all sort of pervaded it. Uh, but the interesting thing is that uh, one of the uh, reactions of the revolution uh, was against the church in a very strong way. Uh, and uh, it, it, so much so that for uh, a short period of time uh, they invented uh, different religions uh, and one of them was known as the cult of reason uh, and so if you go to Paris uh, and you'll go to the little island where the, uh, this big cathedral of Notre Dame is, uh, well for a short time it was known as the temple of reason uh, as it was taken over by the revolution and uh, converted and its uh, statues uh, changed and uh, uh, it wasn't an edifice for the, uh, the uh, church as it then was but it was a, an edifice for reason. Now, that uh, led to a very strong reaction against those who decided that that was all just atheism gone too far. And so they, uh, uh, a fellow called Robespierre, who some of you would remember, he invented a thing called uh, uh, the cult of the supreme being. Uh, and uh, there were uh, particular edicts within it uh, where uh, it started off by saying that the French people recognised the existence of the supreme being and the immortality of the soul. And it then, uh, uh, with what appears to be uh, an interesting and useful beginning, it then uh, got further and further away from anything that resembles the truth uh, the further it went on. Uh, and ultimately, uh, uh, it was uh, as um, imaginary as any other uh, effort to try and invent uh, not only a form of worship, but a god himself. Now, what's the relevance of all of this? Well, because I'm entitled to know God. Right, if indeed God exists. Uh, and how I come to know God and how I find him uh, is a pretty fundamental uh, part of uh, uh, establishing God's uh, uh, preeminent status uh, in this world and indeed in my life. Because if I can't know him, if I don't know where to go to worship him, uh, and if there is no uh, way in which I can worship him uh, uh, without the corruption of a, a, a state-infested uh, organisation, uh, then frankly, what's the point? Uh, if God is hidden and, and I can't, uh, he can't make himself known to me uh, and I have to receive my knowledge of him through such corrupt places as these uh, institutions, then frankly, maybe I better go off and write my own book. Um, uh, or try and work out how to do it. Um, and, uh, and I think one of the uh, important uh, sort of messages I get from these various cults, and we could go into greater detail about it all and just how hopeless it really was, uh, is to recognise that there is a key difference uh, between a God who makes his presence known, uh, between a knowledge and awareness of uh, the truth of God that comes from a relationship that uh, he himself establishes with us, uh, and uh, uh, that which might flow from being part uh, of an organisation because that's where we've grown up or because that's what we have joined. Now, it's interesting, uh, you know, it, currently there's a, a political debate in Australia uh, which thankfully hasn't yet got to the stage of 
a cult of uh, reason or some other uh, overt uh, form of worshipping atheism. Uh, but nevertheless, there's a bit of a reaction going on at the moment because the uh, believers in our community, and I, and I do put quotes around that, uh, are feeling beleaguered uh, by uh, whether it be tagged political correctness or whether it be tagged uh, some of the uh, more direct uh, attacks that uh, some of the secular uh, approaches, whether it be to same-sex marriage, whether it be to uh, um, uh, different uh, elements at the moment. Of course, uh, uh, people are even complaining about the confessional aspect of the Catholic Church, which, as we all know, has got nothing to do with the Bible teaching. Uh, and uh, so various aspects. And so there's a bit of a political reaction to all of this that says, well, maybe we need a uh, to more uh, overtly uh, recognise the need not to discriminate against the church. Uh, and uh, you'll, uh, if you read the newspapers at the moment, they uh, are going into a bit of a debate in that area. I say, let's stand back from all of that, uh, because there has to be a first step uh, that we all take in terms of uh, re reinforcing in ourselves and indeed initiating in our own lives uh, any belief that we have in God and any way of worship that we might ultimately pursue. Uh, because too often uh, in our efforts to know God, uh, we take a first step that is built around uh, uh, looking at others and uh, we look at uh, their apparent uh, religious approach to their lives. We look at the uh, 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 overt uh, manifestations of the way that they worship God. Uh, we look at their words and their actions and we judge for ourselves uh, whether uh, the life they live speaks of a God and uh, indeed the God that we're seeking to know. In other words, uh, we often judge uh, God himself and uh, the truth of his uh, existence uh, based upon our assessment of so-called godly people. Now, if that is the approach, then not just in this age, but throughout history, you would quickly uh, and have a valid basis to conclude that there couldn't possibly be a God. Uh, because uh, those who claim to be godly have done such ungodly things uh, throughout history and so consistently uh, a a a against uh, some of the basic uh, virtues and values that you would expect to find uh, in a godly environment uh, that uh, it would, if that was all there was you had to assess whether there was a God to know, then frankly uh, you're doomed to failure from the beginning. And indeed, um, it shouldn't be too difficult to see how fragile it is uh, to uh, uh, establish our knowledge of God uh, on such a, a basis. To judge God on what people say uh, and do, uh, often, as I said, it can validly lead to unbelief as we're confronted by their deficiencies uh, and we observe uh, uh, what is often a hypocrisy uh, that is uh, manifested in their own way of dealing with things. And the institutional churches over the years, years have certainly uh, given us uh, plenty uh, to judge in that regard. Uh, and indeed, uh, uh, the, fact that, uh, the fact is that actions by people supposedly in the name of God are a very poor basis on which we can build a knowledge of God. Let's think about the Apostle Paul, right? The Apostle Paul, uh, as he is presented to us in the Bible, was a, a man of religious zeal. 
Right? Uh, uh, he, indeed, you might say he was the ultimate religious zealot. Uh, he, he adhered firmly uh, to what was taught by his religion, uh, and he benefited from the power and the prestige that followed. And indeed, uh, his story is uh, how he moved from being a highly religious person to ultimately a true child of God. In Philippians chapter 3, uh, Paul reminds us, and you might turn here to Philippians chapter 3, he reminds us here, as he does also in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 13 to 16, uh, of the profound difference that exists between a successful religious life devoid of a true knowledge of God and a life that is built upon a personal relationship with God. Uh, he, he, he does this clear contrast between uh, uh, apparent uh, and overt religious uh, qualities uh, in some successful religious life uh, with what is actually uh, of real substance, which is having a relationship with God. And um, let's have a read here and we'll pick up the verses. In, in, in Philippians 3 and verse 3, referring to, of course, uh, particular customs of the day uh, and uh, uh, of the children of Israel, he says, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, uh, if any other man thinks that he has whereof he might trust in the flesh, then I the more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, uh, touching the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless, he says. Right? So this is, this is him blowing his uh, trumpet of the life that he once had, right? this uh, religiously successful life, uh, one infected, uh, and I use that word deliberately, infected uh, by this uh, uh, religious flavour uh, that uh, uh, looked like uh, it had some uh, uh, inklings of a link to God but really had lost its way many years uh, before. Uh, natural success... Uh, even in a religious and apparently pious activity, uh, often carries with it a measure of power and prestige. But as the Apostle Paul emphasises, that is irrelevant to a true relationship with God. What is important is to know Jesus Christ and to move on in that knowledge, to be moved by it, to be influenced by it, and to live according to the truth that is embedded within that knowledge. So it goes on in Philippians chapter 3, in verse 7, he says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. And he says, look at this, I can blow my trumpet as much as anybody else. You want somebody with a, a religious success and status? This is me. This is what I did. He said, but, 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 the things that were once gained to me, he says, those I counted loss for Christ. Why? Because they were of no value. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, 
for whom I have suffered loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ, right? So that puts it pretty low in the overall scale of value. He counts it but dung, right? That's pretty low, right? It's uh, 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 not very good. And he found in him, he says, and be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So he draws a key uh, point of doctrinal difference, if you like, uh, between what underpinned the Old Testament uh, uh, a mode of belief and observance with the law with uh, the New Testament way of believing and the message of Christ. Because he says, on the one hand, there was a bit of self-righteousness involved because I had to obey a law, right? Well, there's no such law that Jesus proclaimed, right? And indeed, uh, he captured the law uh, within some very uh, broad uh, principles uh, that were built upon a relationship that we have with God and with each other. And uh, so he says, (coughs) I I, want to be found in him. I want to be found in Jesus, he says, uh, not with my own righteousness, which is of the law that we've left behind and which was fulfilled in Jesus. But that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. These are powerful words. And the reality is that we should seek not to merely know about God as if someone had told us a story about a distant character or someone they once met. Rather, we should seek to know him personally from our own experience, from our own interactions with him and built on that personal experience to be able to relate to others what we have done with him and what he has done with us. As uh, the Apostle Paul says in verse 8 of what we just read, it is an excellent thing to know Christ as my Lord. Paul says that as we put aside those things that we once valued and which the world still values, uh, that we may win Christ that we may be found in him without our own righteousness, that we may know him, that we may know the power of his resurrection, that we may know the fellowship of his sufferings and that we may attain unto the resurrection of the dead. That's why it's an excellent thing to know Jesus Christ and all the people said. These are things worth attaining Right? There's a whole lot of things this, that this world uh, uh, to which it ascribes value. Right? But this is true value. This is why he counts all the other things but dung. Because I can attain these things that really matter. Right? That I can know him. I can be found in him. Uh, I can uh, know the power of his resurrection. I can know the fellowship of his sufferings. And I can attain the resurrection of the dead. So let's think about what it means 
to have uh, something that is excellent in this regard, right? The excellency. Uh, the Greek word, uh, um, uh, which I won't pronounce, um, uh, it, 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 which speaks of excellency here, is to, uh, it, it speaks of something that is better. It speaks of something that is higher, uh, that is supreme, uh, and that excels. Uh, and um, uh, so what I want to do is explore a bit about the knowledge, right, because it's the excellency of the knowledge that he speaks of. What is it about the knowledge that is different, right? Because we can know lots of things, right? We can, we can uh, read things, we can uh, listen to people, we can observe, uh, and we can learn and have, have fun in the world of knowledge, right? But what we're talking about here uh, is the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, that I may know him, Right, that I may know him, uh, and uh, uh, and that's said to be an excellent thing. It is a, a supreme state to be in. So let's have a look at a few things. Firstly, uh, that knowledge comes from a revelation from God. If you go to Second Corinthians in chapter four, uh, you'll find my favourite verse. Um, so in Second Corinthians chapter four and verse six. But before you read it, um, when I was very young in the Lord, I uh, drove my E.K. Holden. Uh, for those of you who know what an E.K. Holden was, uh, it was a, I used to call it Bruce, right? It was a bit of a car. And, um, uh, and I drove it uh, to Studley Park in Kew one day because I was feeling a bit overwhelmed uh, with life. And I drove my E.K. Holden down this windy road down to the Yarra River. And I'd been in the Lord a few months. And I was thinking about God, right? Not a bad thing to think about. And I was wondering how I might be sure that I know him, right? And I thought, well, the best way would be for him to talk to me. Right? So I went into this... Uh, it was a night and it was dark and it was down by Studley Park and, and I went down there by the river and I sort of called out to him right? and I, I thought, well, maybe he should talk to me. Uh, now, I'd been a few months in the Lord and I realised that the Lord had, of course, revealed himself through his spirit and that's a very important part of my testimony. But I suppose I was just wanting something else. Uh, and I, uh, I, I thought, well, maybe he should show himself in a, in a more natural way or in a, in a more tangible way, something that I can, uh, like sitting uh, with a person in a chair next to you. So anyway, I, I cried out uh, that night and, uh, uh, and, and listened, right, because that's the only way I thought I could hear uh, was through my ears. Uh, and guess what? I didn't hear anything, right? I heard the wind in the trees and I heard the, uh, and I was able to behold the beauty of the place, uh, but I didn't hear God. And, um, and I thought about that a bit at the time, and uh, uh, you could say I was a bit disappointed, but uh, it, didn't really, it didn't really knock me around too much, right? Because what it, it sort of reinforced to me is firstly, there was an opportunity for God to uh, make himself known to me in that way if he so chose. Right? I gave him that opportunity. And indeed, I wasn't, I'm sure, the first person in the life of the history of man who's cried out in a one-on-one -on -one, uh, to, uh, to invite God to make himself known to them in such a way. But God chose not to. Right? And I uh, had an opportunity to form some conclusions from that. Right? I could have concluded, therefore, there is no God. Because I said, God, talk to me, and he didn't 
right? Or he didn't uh, talk in a way that I could uh, sense him through my he- my ears. So I certainly could have concluded that. I could have said, ah, oh, there's no God. I-, I-, I called out to him and he was silent, right? Um, but that's actually not what I concluded, right? And, and what I concluded was uh, there's an issue about what it was I was calling out uh, for, right? What, what, what was I seeking, right? And, uh, uh, and indeed, I had a, a bit of a, uh, an expectation, or my goal was, that God would show himself, make himself known in a particular way, right? And he didn't. And what that said to me is that if there is a God, he makes himself known in a way that he chooses and he prescribes. And that is no less real. It is no less of substance uh, for the fact that I can't actually hear him through my ears, right? My ears are... You know, highly technical uh, parts of my body, but at the end of the day, all they can measure are, are sort of uh, uh, moving sound waves, right? Uh, and uh, there was an opportunity for God to make Himself available, and He chose to do it in a different way. And what that says to me is that if there is a God who reveals Himself in some way, I either allow that to happen and live within that revelation. Or I turn away. And have a look at these verses in 2 Corinthians. It says, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, God turned on a light that revealed himself to us. Here it says, a light of the knowledge of the glory of God, and that light is turned on in the face of Jesus Christ. And that is a revelation, and that is no less significant than it would be had God decided to talk to me in my ears and sort of make the sound waves come into my ears. This is just as powerful a revelation. This speaks just as strongly, if not more, about the presence of God and our ability to know him. And it goes on to say, but we have this treasure uh, in, (coughs) excuse me, earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Emphasising what we just read in Philippians chapter 3, that this is not about building uh, an edifice Uh, of self-righteousness right this is not about us in that sense it is about an ability that we have to tap into God's presence and an understanding of what he has to offer right there is a revelation here there's a light that's being turned on where God is making him his glory known to us and that's a good thing to know right so the first thing to understand as to why it is good to have the knowledge of God, why it is an excellent thing, why it is uh, something we should covet, is that it comes from a revelation from God. God will make himself known to you. Uh, Praise the Lord in our fellowship. We have a testimony, each one of us individually, of God's revelation to us and him making himself known to us. And we should rejoice in that. And all the people said, right? Because the world that is so full of darkness doesn't live in that light 
And indeed, they will uh, seek to infect you with their darkness uh, as they seek to rebut uh, the light that uh, uh, is shining in your life. We are to let that light shine and we are to rejoice that it is a knowledge that comes from the revelation of God. The second aspect of uh, what makes it excellent to know God is that it's personal. It is critical for us to realise that ours is a personal knowledge. It's not dependent upon the knowledge of others. It's not dependent upon an institution. It's not dependent upon uh, that framework. That is a defining element of the New Testament promise. It doesn't mean to say, by the way, that fellowship is not important. Far from it. And indeed, uh, the Apostle Paul emphasises the value that there is for us uh, building, building upon that individual experience to come together in fellowship one with another, to be taught and guided and, and uh, kept away from the winds of doctrine that uh, uh, blow around about us all the time. A really important part of life. But it has to be built on a personal experience. Otherwise, it's not yours. Otherwise, it isn't your knowledge. It is just me trying to jam it down your throat or in your ears or however else you want to receive it. God has intervened in our lives uh, to open up our understanding, to move us from the place of darkness into one of light. That light brings us a knowledge of God's glory, as we're told and as we just read in 2 Corinthians in the face of Jesus Christ. In Jeremiah chapter 31, let's go to the Old Testament. And this is, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the profound capturing of what was to come and what did come in the New Testament promise. Right at a time when Jeremiah the prophet uh, was speaking to his people, when things were pretty tough, frankly, uh, within their state at the time, uh, and he had a vision from the Lord that went beyond all of that. And he pointed to that time and that age in these verses in Jeremiah chapter 31, where he says in verse 31, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, And with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was an husband unto them, says the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts. I will write it in their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbour and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me, rather, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Uh, This is uh, the essence of the New Testament promise, is that he will do something in here, that will allow you to know God, that will open up your eyes of understanding, that will actually give you that uh, uh, peace in your life uh, that is built upon a relationship with God. It is impossible for us to know God according to our own natural perceptions or because, as I said before, of someone else's so-called godliness. 
Um, uh, it, 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 we, we need to build it, and the promise of the New Testament is to build it on, from a personal relationship as he comes within us. Uh, of course, we need to be told about the gospel, right? We all need to uh, have that ignited. And indeed, in Romans chapter 10, I'll read it, but you needn't turn to it in verse 14. It says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? All right, so we need to have the word spoken. We need to respond to it. And so, yes, we do. God does use individuals. Right? He does communicate to us uh, through those who are willing to be active in his service. Uh, but then it is for us as individuals to respond and claim the Lord's love. And we do that, as we well know, uh, by repentance uh, that changes uh, uh, the direction in our life, by baptism in obedience, our personal act of obedience, and receiving God's Holy Spirit that seals his relationship with us. And if you're taking notes in 2 Corinthians, you can read about that uh, in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 21 to 23. And indeed, in verse 22, it says, Now he which establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who has also sealed us and given the earnest or the guarantee of the Spirit in our hearts. All right, so we have somebody who's established us in our faith in Jesus Christ, and that is God. And that God has anointed us. He's anointed us with something which uh, uh, provides a strong basis for our belief, uh, and that is the Holy Spirit uh, that ha has come into our life, and he, he has uh, given us that power and that, is, that experience. And indeed, if you think about it, there's a whole lot of um, uh, flaws in uh, religious teaching uh, that are exposed when you begin to understand those uh, pretty simple, basic, fundamental uh, elements of what it means to build up a relationship with God. Think about infant baptism, for example, uh, and uh, what a flawed religious concept uh, that is, where an individual who is too young to have any knowledge of who they are and what they are doing, yet alone any knowledge of the Lord himself, uh, is uh, put through a ceremony by others in some vicarious way. In those circumstances, it is impossible for that child's uh, so-called baptism to be an answer of a good conscience toward God, uh, and yet that's what it is meant to be. Okay, why, why else is it excellent to know God? Well, it's a, a knowledge that is built on love. So in Matthew 22, if you turn with me there. And remember, I, I, I mentioned earlier that uh, in the New Testament, it's not built on uh, obedience to a whole suite of laws, uh, but the law was to be captured within these broad principles. And here Jesus uh, identifies the great commandment and said unto him in verse 37 of Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. So our knowledge of God is built upon a relationship with him. It's built upon the love of God, uh, which uh, it, we're told elsewhere is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. 
Uh, we need that relationship and we have that relationship and we should rejoice in it. Uh, interestingly there it says that uh, uh, we are to love the Lord our, our God with our heart and with our soul and also with our mind, right? So it doesn't mean to say that we uh, uh, turn it into some intellectual pursuit because otherwise you'll uh, probably uh, find yourself uh, uh, writing uh, the principles of the cult of the supreme being or some other bit of nonsense uh, as you go through. You know, one of the things they did, they did, they did such weird things, right? <laughs> one of the things that they did is they, they, they were hung up on the decimal. Everything had to be decimal, right? Uh, and indeed, uh, the decimal uh, measurement system that we have was, uh, came uh, as a product of those changes in France. Uh, but they also tried to play around with the time and the date and the calendar and in fact for a few years they, they were using a, a whole different calendar where they renamed all the months and the, everything was around decimals this and decimals that and so instead of having a day off every seven days you only had a day off every ten days well you can imagine how happy the peasants were with that right and uh, uh, so instead of having a weekly day of rest they uh, had one every ten days right? And it's, uh, so they did all these really strange things and then instead of going to church on Sunday you were supposed to go off to this temple uh, and uh, uh, do your own little festivities and instead of having uh, celebrations under a church calendar they um, had all these times when you were to celebrate other sort of civic things so very odd um, anyway how did I get onto that oh yes uh, we were talking about um, it's it, it, loving the Lord with all your mind is not about just turning it into an intellectual pursuit far from it we are taught consistently that such a pursuit will surely fail uh, the deficiencies of our natural reasoning will come up uh, short every time. Nevertheless, we are invited, indeed commanded, to use our minds to understand, to be persuaded and to give others the opportunity to hear the gospel. Right? So we are to use our minds. Right? We're not just to be uh, sort of like... Um, uh, I don't know, lemon, lemmings being led, right? We are entitled to use our mind. We are commanded to love the Lord uh, with all our uh, hearts, with all our soul and with all our mind, right? And uh, we should grasp the teaching that he gives to us. Have a read in Psalm 107. Turn with me here. What else is it about uh, the knowledge of God that makes it excellent? Well, it satisfies. Right? It's, a, it's not that type of knowledge that just uh, once you've got it, it begs another question. Right? It ultimately gives you a satisfaction. Uh, and it, uh, it, it, it gives you a fulfilled state of well-being that the world, when it is in darkness, so often strives for and yet doesn't ever get close. Uh, so here in Psalm 107, we're told to give thanks unto the Lord in verse 1. For he is good, and his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy, and gathered them out of the, the lands from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a solitary way. They found no city to dwell in. They were hungry and thirsty, and their soul fainted in them. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. And he led them forth by the right way, that they might go to a city of habitation. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. 
for he satisfies the longing soul and he fills the hungry soul with goodness, it says here. And so that knowledge that we have in God, one of the reasons we are, you know, the psalmist pleads with us here to give thanks to God is that he then uh, he characterises the life that we have without God as somebody who is lost, as somebody uh, uh, who wanders about in a wilderness in a solitary way. Right? He's not talking about somebody who just, you know, is walking down the road and not sure where to go and has to get Google Maps out, right? Um, uh, he's talking about uh, uh, that state that we are in without God. And that without a knowledge of God, uh, we are wandering around in wilderness. We are hungry, we are thirsty, we have a soul that faints within us. Uh, but when we cry unto the Lord, the psalmist says, uh, even in our time of trouble, then he delivers us uh, out of our distresses. He leads us by the right way that we may go to a place where we can live and dwell in a state of well-being, right? He, for he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. goodness. It is a, an excellent thing to know God because it is satisfying. Uh, and it gives us uh, a, a place. You know, Jesus, when he uh, talked about the manna <clears throat> uh, that came down to feed the children of Israel as they wandered around in the desert, he said, look, that was pretty good and pretty important, otherwise they would have died, right? But you know what? It was just food for a day, right? And it only took them so far, and they got hungry again. Right? They might have been satisfied in the short term, but they got hungry again. Uh, and, uh, but the bread of God which comes down from heaven, says the Lord in John chapter 6, it gives life unto the world. Right? It transcends uh, and goes further uh, than just that natural sustenance. Uh, and uh, uh, Jesus promised to be that bread to us all. Colossians chapter 2. <clears throat> It's also excellent to know God because it opens up uh, more possibilities than we could ever imagine. In fact, the phrase that I used to use as a teenager was that it boggles the mind. Right? It boggles the mind. Uh, and uh, uh, let's read a bit about it here. In Colossians 2 verse 3 it says, "...in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." in verse 3 of chapter 2 in Colossians. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words, for though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain or empty deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Right? If we really want the font of knowledge, 
you don't have to join some uh, theosophical society or philosophical society or some university, right? If you really want to know him, if you want to open up the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, uh, then build your relationship with God and have him reveal to you uh, the, uh, 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 the, the boundless possibilities that come as God works with his people. Let's finish in Second Peter and chapter 1. And just to emphasise here that uh, uh, it's an excellent thing because uh, it is the complete story that we receive as we have the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, it says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. Right? So his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. And how has he done that? He's done that through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. Right, uh, one of the things that Mr. Robespierre got himself all uh, uh, hung up about was virtue, right, uh, as he built up his uh, cult of uh, uh, the supreme being and the like. And uh, it was all about uh, trying to find virtue in the people and how could you create an environment that would uh, uh, encourage that virtue to come out and shine and ultimately influence people's character and the actions that they took. And now he, of course, had it in a, a somewhat um, uh, odd context. But here, uh, we're, we're, we are called through the knowledge of Jesus Christ uh, to glory and virtue, whereby, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You want to escape the corruption of the world don't go sitting down and writing a new uh, imaginary ideal, right? But rather grasp hold of the truth that is available so freely to us. Secure an understanding and a knowledge of God uh, as he reveals it to us uh, and that glory that is available. And beside this, he says, uh, you've got to work at a few things. He says, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance and to temperance patience and to patience godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness charity or love for if these things be in you and abound they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our lord jesus christ Right? So we need to grow in our experience. Right? This is not about having some sort of stale awareness of the things of God. It's about diligently adding to what he has so freely given to us. It is about growing in our experience so that we would not be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he that lacks these things, he says, is blind. So you're back in darkness and you cannot see uh, afar off and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure 
For if you do these things, you shall never fall. Hey, that's pretty good. It's good to, uh, and indeed it's an excellent thing to have a knowledge of God. And if we would take that knowledge and have it as the, uh, the foundation piece in the life that we build and add to it in the way that it's prescribed here, and as we're diligent uh, in doing so, we shall never fall. And all the people said. That's all I wanted to say.